everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Climate Stand with the Final Stand. I, Nanki, along with my fellow TFS member Himmat, will be hosting today's episode. Today we have another interesting and great guest with us. Uh, we have Ishan Chaturvedi. So, Ishan Chaturvedi is an environmental and energy um, scholar. He is the founder director of the environmental consultancy firm Envipol. Uh, co-director of the Global Policy, Diplomacy, and Sustainability, also known as the G- GPODS um, Fellowship. He is the Assistant Dean at the Jindal School of Environment and Sustainability, and also a member of the prestigious global organizations such as the World, Com- uh, the World Commission on Environmental Law, International Association for Water Law, Rome, Global Network for Human Rights and Environment, and Global Policy Insights as well. He also holds a master's in environmental law and policy from Stanford Law School, where he was elected as one of the top 20 rising environmental leaders. In his free time, he enjoys poetry and discussions on astrophysics and geopolitics as well. Um, so, Ishan, hi. How are you? Hi, Amit. Uh, it's been about one and a half years of using Zoom for interactions, and I still haven't got comfortable with my introductions being read out for 30 <laughs> seconds. Maybe we need to shorten that going forward. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, could you give us just a brief introduction for the viewers that don't know of you as yet? Yes. So, hi everyone, and glad to be here. I think Himmat, you, and the team are doing a great job promoting something that needs to be promoted in the first place, and that's exactly mm-hmm. what I try to do through my scholarly efforts, which is being an environmental lawyer and more so uh, being an environmental policy analyst. That's basically what I do through my organizations such as uh, Envipol, and which is a policy review analysis firm, and GPOS, the fellowship where we believe in skill development and, and the thought being that environment cannot be taken in a silo anymore. And uh, to make effective climate, take effective climate action, there, there have to be integrations between other fields and environment. Uh, such as public policy, such as international relations. And that's basically what I do. Yes, so uh, that's about it. Uh, Again, we've already taken about 45 seconds in your introduction of me and another one minute here. So I think we could just get on to the topic now and start discussing what we're here to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you for that. We're going to basically talk about policies uh, that could be unrelated to the environment and how they have an impact on environmental law, sustainability, and how this question is pertinent and how we should explore it, talk, including its historical development and the definition. So I guess we could start with you telling us a bit about your, a bit about NVPOL. Yeah, uh, so uh, I was at the World Economic Forum uh, in, I think it was 2019. It seems so far back now because of COVID, but a lot of the conversations were centered around being an environmental professional and an environmental lawyer. A lot of the conversations were centered around how there's, a vacuum in terms of homegrown public policy that is centered around it. And I came back to India and, and I realized that, you know, that is something that needs to be done. People should have access to advice that specializes in environment. And the problem with anything, anyone claiming to specialize in environment is that they're either lying or they do not know what they're talking about because it is impossible to be a specialist in something like the environment. And, and I have uh, discussed this with you, Himmat, earlier in one of our uh, sessions, but environment is quite literally everything around us. And and that is why if you, you know, I, I don't want to get right from the beginning into the philosophy of it. So I, I keep it for later. But environment, it is very interesting if you look at it, because 
you know, you think of the terms that signify environment. You think of environment. You think of ecosystem. You think of atmosphere. And to give you an understanding of what is the length and breadth of this term, just think about the fact that you use the term atmosphere in such a broad sense. So, my office atmosphere isn't good. That atmosphere in that group is not good. The extent of the term that terms that are related to environment are so broad that that in itself, the colloquial etymology of it or taxonomy of it, should give you an understanding of what is the is the width and length of the subject that you're dealing with. Similarly, you take uh, the term ecosystem. Uh, you know, the ecosystem of that workplace is not good. The ecosystem of whatever group or organization is not is very good. So it has now transcended the usual definitions and now is being denoted to cover everything and nothing specific, both atmosphere and ecosystem. Uh, similarly, the term envi- environment itself, again, you look at the usage in our colloquial understanding and you're talking of, you know, the environment at that school is very good. Yesterday night, I had a fight with my partner and the environment was a little off, whatever. My point is that even the basic terms that want to signify the meaning of the term environment are almost ambiguous to the extent of covering everything that comes with it. Sometimes as lawyers, if you don't want to be specific in a legal brief, you use the term environment or ecosystem or atmosphere. And that just goes to show that that's the, that's the dichotomy of a subject in which you want to specialize because First, to specialize in anything, you need to define it. And that's the challenge that Envipol is struggling with and is succeeding in because we want to define uh, the right policies, tangential or directly related to environment, uh, and review them and advise on them and make sure that all the ripple effects that happen due to your action, due to my action, are considered in an environmental policy that would otherwise be oblivious to something that happens in one corner of one uh, neighborhood. So uh, that's what we try to achieve. It, it seems a, a gigantic task, but, you know, you've got to start somewhere. And, and I'm glad that, you know, uh, people at the Climate Club and elsewhere as well, there is a growing conversation about environment and that obviously helps us uh, find our way through. Yeah, absolutely. I think you pretty much not hit the nail right on the head there because we basically just hit the tip of the iceberg. Uh, while, you know, the thoughts of the environment and earth goes back to all sorts of, like, for example, Greek mythology, it's just there etched in our history. Yeah. And we're only just, like I said, we're at the, we've hit the tip of the iceberg just today. There's still so much yet to discover. Yeah. Uh, one thing I would like to ask you is, you know, during the pandemic, um, the earth basically came to a standstill, you know. And I think one, probably one good thing that came out of that is that people could just step back for a second, breathe in and look at what's happening on the earth. So hmm. as and uh, for Envipol, as they are a consultancy, has, in what ways has the pandemic affected you and Envipol? So it's actually a very good question. And so let me first start by saying that this has happened before. It might not have been at this scale, obviously, and, and hopefully nothing ever will happen at this scale. No global disaster will happen at this scale. But I have an Envipol through me has a very, very specific stand on what we call a natural disaster. 
and let me tell you a story about a japanese town town and i i promise you himma this is not going to be like one of my lectures i'm not going to go on a rant here but uh if you let me tell you a little story about a small japanese town there was there's this town called kumagaya okay k u m a g a y a uh, it's about i think 40 miles or 40 kilometers northwest of tokyo agricultural town happy people as you would expect uh you know if you google kumagaya the town you'll find cherry blossoms in all the photos so you know the quintessential japanese town uh agricultural being i mean based on agricultural economy and such things now the story goes this way in the first week of july in 2018 there were flash floods and torrential rains and uh, rains and mudslides and what not and when that, when all of that happened uh people obviously pointed towards climate change and this this is happening because of climate change and these are unexpected rains and and you know at least with in, with such intensity it would not have happened otherwise it, by by the first week of uh july 2018 it started receiving and bear with me i'll come to your question much for a minute i'm just trying to draw a picture here and and tell a story about it and uh by the end of the first week of july uh everything started rec- receding and as it so often happens uh the rain was followed by heat you know because there's sudden uh lack of humidity and and increase in humidity be whichever case it may be and by 9th of july if i'm not wrong temperatures started exceeding 40 degrees 23rd of july it was claimed to be an emergency you know about over 70000 people were hospitalized if i'm not wrong about 1500 people were dead in the small town of kumagaya and the meteorological department of uh, japan officially called it a natural disaster by the last week of july so this is one instance of a natural disaster right and a layman would argue that you know you're right torrential rains who could have done anything about it and heat wave obviously we can't control it now come to july exactly a year from then uh, july 2019 and you're looking at france and france had temperatures of 46 degrees and again 1500 people died and and it was a terrible terrible uh, situation and it was called a red alert or whatever they Uh, their version of an emergency is in France, and again, you know, it's a natural disaster, and you know, what could you do about it? And we, sitting in India, might not obviously we feel for the numbers and we feel for the disasters that are happening, but it is almost, you know, too insignificant a number for us when we talk of fifteen hundred, and that's at the core of. climate change agitation or policy or you know law or whatever you may have because you have to look at things in context always now there are two points here one is 1500 for town of kumagaya 1500 for for france is a is a decent part of their population it might not be for a 1.3 billion com- uh, country but it should be right because you know 1500 lives are 1500 lives wherever they may be 
but the impact of climate change cannot be seen in the one of incident in Komakia and you will pass it off as a natural disaster because you know it happened once. So you picked up a couple of countries, you blame them for you know whatever happened, rightly, wrongly, I'm not commenting on that. But such instances have happened before, viruses have been happening earlier, these diseases have been happening earlier, and maybe this is something that we should now be prepared for. And that is one of my primary arguments against governments who pride themselves of evac on evacuating 2 lakh people every year because a cyclone hits or a hurricane hits. Because my idea is that now that is that cyclone or that uh, hurricane is no longer a natural disaster. It's a man-made disaster. It is as consistent, in fact, more consistent than the seasons that happen every year. Which means that instead of priding yourselves on evacuating 2 lakh people, 200,000 people, 2 million people, you should pride yourselves on having the infrastructure in the first place to deal with these disasters. All of these disasters now are becoming less and less natural and more and more man-made because now we're understanding climate science, now we're understanding how all of these things are related to human consumption, human exploitation of natural resources, so on and so forth. And in the case of COVID, arguably, uh, it is because uh, humans went beyond what, what was supposed to be their habitat and then claim that other, other animals are coming into their habitat. So it has given us time to reflect. I do fear, if I'm being absolutely honest, that when the world is rid of COVID, and I hope that happens soon, we would want to make up for the lost time and we would want to make up for the lost economic and professional opportunities and we'd want to make up for the fact that we did not travel for two years. I mean, an abhorrent example of this is flights, you know, no destination flights or whatever they were called last year when, you know, a couple of airlines used to fly out from City X, do a round in the sky and come back to City X at the airport because people just miss the feeling of flying, right? And, and I'm thinking to myself that a two hours flight, a five hours flight is one seat on a five hours flight is equivalent to melting three square meters of polar ice caps. If you could have just stayed in your city and, you know, not extinguish that kind of fuel, the world would be so much better off. Uh, be that as it may, I feel that, you know, economy is going to go into turbo mood, uh, mode after this stops. And I just hope that, you know, some countries have taken a, step forward towards going green and using this as an opportunity. Uh, so I hope that we keep doing the same. But I, I am actually very happy about the fact that a lot of the people are now taking climate change seriously or a lot of the people are now thinking about the fact that this could be our environment, but for our actions. And this is very important, Himant, because I'm, I'm talking about myself sitting in New Delhi, you're talking about yourself sitting in Colombo, people are sitting elsewhere. But think about people who were born a generation after you. A kid born in 2015 in Delhi, for him, winters are smog. And that is what I fear. You, I fear for a kid for whom the definition of winter is smoke. I had the luxury of enjoying winter you know, for the cold and for the for the dew and everything beautiful that nature throws at us. 
for some people there would be a preconceived notion that you know now winter is going to come and this is how it's been always and and i'm going to have trouble breathing and i'd need an oxygen cylinder or what what have you so maybe those people have had a chance to appreciate that you know all of this is anthropocene in nature and and we should do something about it and obviously a lot of policy changes are required to effectuate that in the longer run but at least maybe people uh, people have thought about it and that's that's all you can ask for from the majority of global population to introspect yeah absolutely uh, what you said about you know the kid born in 2015 and there was this quote that where it said we're not borrowing we're not t- we're not taking the earth from older generations we're using them or borrowing them from the future generations yeah. and that's where the whole concept of you know sustainability where we're not stealing resources from the future generations we're leaving enough for them to do what they need to do as well yeah. because yeah. i think something that we're starting to understand is we're not we're obviously not leaving the earth in a good condition for them you know they're probably going to have it the toughest so, of us all so himma there's there's another issue there and this goes back to the first point i made that you know you're dealing you want to delve into environment but you you can't define environment and and i have very strong views there but let me address what you just mentioned you know that and i i completely agree you borrowing your natural resources everything from your future generations you're not inheriting them from your past generations but if that is the definition of sustainability then sustainability is aimed towards you know returning what you've borrowed to your future generations and that has some intrinsic questions within that definition itself and you know some of the questions are okay if you think that you know these are resources of the future what are these resources you know if you want to leave enough behind for the future generation what do you leave behind in the first place what do you decide on is it you know gdp is it healthcare is it life expectancy is it per capita is it the number of forests you have or the number of trees is it ha- is it cleaner air is it better water quality what is the currency of the resource that you're leaving behind that's one of the biggest thoughts when when that occurred to me when we talking of sustainability because what are you restricting yourself to or what are you enabling yourself to leave behind and the second question is obviously the age of old question of how much are you leaving behind are you leaving enough behind that their needs are taken care of because i would argue that that's inherently unjust because i or you or anyone from our generation so generations above certainly did not restrict their actions because you know iska climate impact kya hoga what will what will be the climate impact of this thing if i litter this on the street or litter this or do not segregate my waste so if our actions were unhinged vis-a-vis climate change then why only leave in enough that would be needed by the future generation so that's the other segment of sustainability that how much and what resource now this is starting to get very interesting as we going into the realm of population metrics because the corollary of how much is you can only define how much you leave behind how many national resources or otherwise you leave behind when you know how many people will be in the future generation right because you know think of planning a party for your birthday or you know whatever a saturday night you can only account for the number of pizzas when you know the number of guests you'll have right i know it's a simplistic example but i'm trying to the point i'm trying to make is unless you know 
the expected population either through a very well calibrated matrix that has been modulated on the recent trends of the past 100 years the number for 2100 for example unless you know or you not know how many how many of these natural resources you need to leave behind or other resources i say natural because i think that natural resources is the currency of the future in the sense that you should leave enough of the natural resources behind for them for they not just their utilization but also their conservation but some people would argue gdp and life expectancy as i said so if you're leaving behind enough natural resources for what you extrapolate to be say 15 billion people then my question would be that why are you playing god who gave you the right to decide that all right everyone today will have 0.75 children right or everyone today will have 1.5 children or 2.5 or 3 how many ever how can you restrict someone's actions just to module a risk assessment strategy for 80 years later so that how much question then goes into the morality of public institutions of risk assessment agencies of leaving of sustainable development for that matter how much do you leave behind is then a population ethics question and and you can uh, you know you can go into hobbs and you can go into machiavelli and then argue that you know this is right or this is wrong or you can go into amarth sen's research who says that you know there should be no restriction or you can pick up examples from other nations from a recent past which have employed one child policy and we have seen how badly it has failed in terms of you know uh, black markets for children and female feticide and what not so where do you draw the line in answering how much and while doing so are you conscious of the fact that you are any which way playing god on the future generations by either leaving enough for their need or leaving enough for their enjoyment or leaving enough for their success or leaving enough for their exploitation all of those paradigms are still to be explored and that is why we are at a precipice of generations which haven't had to face questions that are half as challenging because and i do understand every generation has a problem of their own but uh, for us the problem is in not knowing what the right question is and for most generations the problem has been in not knowing what the right answer is we do not know if the question the right question is how much or what or when or how all of those are equally important questions which we haven't framed right so uh, again to your point sustainable development as hunky dory as it sounds and as a 1987 brunkland report concept it is very good because it's played in it's part in getting all the countries around the globe together but if you go into the actual practical pragmatic underpinnings of it i think a lot of it still needs to be pondered over and and i think a, a former politician from another country had once said that i i just hope that our future generations have more wisdom than we do to handle these issues and and that's what i hope because our past generations have have failed in providing us with solutions or providing us with the right questions to have solutions for yes i'm ha- i'm happy to take up any questions if there are any uh, following up to what you said yeah. now that we have so many unknowns around us we have problems defining what the environment itself is we are have so many questions to ask we don't know what questions to ask and there's this parallel sense of running out of time that we don't have enough time to act so in this whole environment again of unknowns how do we translate this into policy 
when we're having questions about what we're talking about, how do we translate into policy? Even when we talk about legislation, it yeah. so often happens that we need to define things in a very strict sense. We just bear okay. at start Absolutely. by defining things in strict sense. So how do we tackle that? So uh, there are those are both important points uh, in terms of and and Ranki, keep your question handy because I'm I'm gonna come back to you and uh, ask you to you know reiterate your question because. I might go on a bit of a rant here because my first issue with policy to address climate change is that much like environment, climate change is all encompassing, right? So first, we need to rid ourselves of the idea that, listen, I'm only a climate change professional or I'm only an environmental professional. No, by virtue of being a climate change professional, by virtue of being an environmental professional, you are intrinsically a professional of policy, a professional of diplomacy, a professional of economics, a professional of biodiversity, a prof- professional of international organization management systems, a professional of fisheries management, a professional of... So, first of all, we must stop being content in thinking that, all right, I'm an environmental lawyer and that is what defines me. No, if you have associated an expertise or if you want to associate an expertise in environment with your designation, you must first come with an open mind that you know nothing and you are a professional across the board. All right, because you would be required to understand the economics of having a higher floor area ratio or of an FSI in Bombay to understand what are the impacts of chess tournaments that are happening indoors because of pollution. And that is quite literally the length that I'm asking you to consider. So one of the things that policy requires is truly environmental professionals. Environmental professionals who are then consulted not just for the ministries of environment around the globe or departments of environment in corporates, but environmental professionals who are now required for every department because Every department has an aspect of environment. You, I would give you an exercise and you can do this in your own time. Take out the list of ministries that government of India has. Okay. Uh, you have ministry of external affairs. You have ministry of finance. You have ministry of uh, animal husbandry. You have ministry of steel, coal, renewable energy, water, uh, health and family welfare, so on and so forth. Right. You can keep going like this. Show me one ministry that is devoid of environmental impact. And that is one way to proceed further. We must accept that environmental professions are required everywhere. Especially environmental professionals should expect, accept that they are environmental policy professions and environmental lawyers and environmental diplomats and environmental management managers. And in my, I mean, you have it, you, you say it and they should be ready to be it because environment cannot be seen in a silo. In fact, Himat in my introduction mentioned about the GPODS Fellowship, the Global Policy Diplomacy and Sustainability Fellowship. We started the fellowship keeping this very thing in mind because if you want to achieve sustainability, you cannot divorce it from policy, you cannot divorce it from international relations. For you to be a sustainability professional, you have to have policy, you have to have diplomacy. And that's why GPODS has been so successful over the past year or so. 
because people understand that there's a huge huge vacuum of professionals who are not just experts in one faction but understand sustainability from various spheres of international relations and game theory and systems design thinking and all of those things so that's one uh, issue nanti the other issue is how do you come how do you account for solutions or the lack of now there are various views and and i myself have have written extensively on this and in fact let's let's not try and you know a burden hand is better than two in the bush so let me start small and you know i had co-authored an article with himmat here and i'd love for him to introduce the concept but take water for example and this is why environment becomes such a challenging field because you have a global aspect to it where climate change and global warming and sea level rise and immigration migration uh, and and you know recession of glaciers everything is happening and then there is a local element to it so why do you not have drinkable potable tap water right or why do you get water only two hours a day if you're living in some parts of delhi or why do you get no water at all obviously the other is people or we as citizens have been agitating and successfully agitated for right to clean water as a fundamental right as you know nanti being a law student we have also very well defined provisions in the water act of uh, 1976 1974 sorry so we have all of these bases covered have we turned our gaze towards what is going wrong or have we just been enabling every citizen because enablement of citizens is very very important but that cannot be done independently that all right you have been enabled now go do whatever that's not how it works have you introspected and checked why is there a water loss why is there a water scarcity and one of the main reasons that we came up with in that research that we undertook was uh this case of non revenue water so from the time that water is what is starts the journey of re- reaching the consumers right in that transactional time between water being available for consumers and water re- reaching the consumers anywhere between 30 to 60% of all of india's water is lost and this is ready to use water that we talked and what policies do we have about it barely any maybe a couple of municipal corporations are working to fix this uh, and these water losses which account for almost two thirds of our total water for the country are why are they happening because our pipelines are old because our infrastructure is old because we're not putting enough money into stabilizing what we have and throwing adverts about it and how you should vote for us because people do it so maybe the policy solutions are right there next to us to answer your question it's just that we have to think about it and we have to you know take them up seriously yes and 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 i'm sorry obviously if the answer was that you see we would all be fighting climate action a lot like fighting climate change a lot better but answers are a little different anyway so uh that's that's one of the things obviously if himmat you have any other issues uh, other uh, other opinions about uh, problems facing us in water policy or generally happy to hear them as well yeah so um for those for the listeners who don't know yet um Ishan and I and another person as well Muskan we had written an article that got published in the um Crawford policy school forum 
Um, we've basically talked about non-revenue water and, you know, India's going to, is right now or will be very soon facing a groundwater crisis. And, you know, especially the world all around, you know, studies indicate that anywhere between 35 and 60 percent of water that is meant for citizens is wasted. So and some of the pipelines and management systems in India, at least, are five decades old. I mean, there's a lack of proper maintenance. There's an unfocused approach by municipalities and state government as well. And, you know, I think citizens are just not aware of the problem that's happening under the ground, under their homes and under the cities. And, you know, they're not, they don't, they're not aware of what's happening or where's the rest of the water that they should be getting. We need to develop curiosity about things. And how do you do that? You do that through education systems. And, and, and this seems very unrelated that, you know, why is he talking about curiosity when he's talking about water policy? Or because you took the specific example of smart meters. It is because we have all been reading in the news that this year there are going to be 100 new smart cities and next year there are going to be another 150 new smart cities. And you stand up and you applaud and you're thinking that, all right, Allahabad, Prayagraj is now a smart city and Sonipat is now a smart city and Delhi is now a smart city or whatever. But how many of us really understand what smart cities are? And we, as Citizens, it is our duty to understand what is being served to us. It is our duty to understand what are the developments, good or bad, happening. Because unless we try to understand those developments, we would not start questioning them. It's only once you understand or fail to understand something that you'll question. So curiosity, in curiosity is implicit this need to question. Why? how, when, how much, where, those sort of things. So if you really want to plug those holes, you plug those by asking the right questions. Now, how do you ask the right questions? You write about it. You you speak about it with your friends. You make it a household conversation. If you're sitting at the dining table with your family today, would you not talk about the pandemic? you would talk about the pandemic and you will question what the government is doing, what international organizations are doing. You will support what the government is doing, what the international organizations are doing, depending on your ideology, which is absolutely fine. I, I really believe in Bentham's concept that, you know, clash of ideas give rise to new ideas. Absolutely on, on, on for it. However, unless you discuss. Now, if pandemic is a crisis, climate change is crisis times infinity. Do you have everyday conversations on your dining table with your family discussing how, you know, uh, the Himalayan glacier is melting or uh, New Caledonia and other Pacific Islands are at the, at the precipice of being submerged forever? Those are the conversations that you need to normalize. Unless you discuss these things, that won't happen. And, and how do you develop that basic instinct to discuss what is in, what discuss what is happening around you, you can only discuss it when you think that it is important enough. Pandemic is important enough because it's happening to everyone around. Similarly, climate change will be important enough when you start realizing that it's happening to everyone around us. And that is why we should give up this whole concept of natural disasters, acts of God, force majeure, whatever you may call it. Because when you realize that 
you know, wildfires happened in California because of all of our collective action, right? Or Australian bushfires or Amazon or whatever you may have, they happened and they're affecting us because of our actions. That's when you want to have a conversation. So to the extent of being blasphemous about this, let us be, let us stop being ignorant to start. And then, as I said, uh, if you want to go back to something as simple as net metering, uh, sorry, uh, smart metering, you first need to read up on it. You first need to understand what is happening. Has anyone made the connection between this and that? Has anyone come up with this idea? And do not ever be scared to feel stupid when you're in the policy sphere. You're allowed to be stupid because unless you are asking the most obvious questions, you would not come to questions that are not so obvious. So those are some of the things that I could probably think of. But again, keep an open mind and delve into as many things as possible. Read as much as you can. Uh, read, I mean, Himmat knows this, but I am an absolute astrophysics nerd. I'm an absolute neuroscience nerd. And it does not have anything to do with my profession. But, you know, when I read Incognito by David Eagleman, or when I read how emotions are made by uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, I can make connections with environment around me. And those are the connections that people might not have made. Those are the connections that at least help me think about solutions in a new light. So if you keep an open mind and reanalyze the problems with new tools that, you know, fellowships like GPODs give to you or, or GSES does, that's when you can probably uh, go over the tipping point and actually introspect truly. Thank you for that, Ishan. And I think the very, and a very important thing about raising this is it's very forward looking that we encourage our listeners, we encourage people around us to take part in the conversation, like you said, it begins with questions and conversations, dinner table conversations, very right? basic yeah. things like that. Yeah. Now, this may be a little anecdotal, but given that both Himmat and I are um, passionate about environment, and maybe something we can share as part of this podcast is, I, for example, started to compost in my home back in January. Yeah. And something as simple as that, something that was my initiative in the beginning, is something everyone in my family participates in today. When going to throw something, they're looking at the compost bin instead of the garbage bin. They ask me questions. And I think that's where we as a younger generation can come and you make small changes in your houses, your home, your conversations, and that inspires people around you to think. And yeah, I think we should all look, we should not only talk about it, but make small changes every day. And even if you're not changing, people sometimes come up to me and ask, you know, what can I do? If you're doing this, what can I do? I say, it's a, before you do something, do you think how this can impact the environment? How maybe this, as you said, could cause a bushfire in some other part of the world? Hmm. If you're doing that, you're making change because you did the first step. You thought about it. Hmm. So just think about it. No, absolutely not. In fact, uh, I have, you know, I have this, slideshow of thoughts that I should be speaking of when you discuss this and an absolutely brilliantly made point. And just to add to what you were saying, I remember having a conversation with a very renowned judge and he was speaking at one of the conferences and I spoke and I was asking him, you know, how do you change this and how do you get people to do this? And he said that 
it is really one aspect is awareness yes information and i don't don't even want to start on information uh, because all of the statistics that we see globally not just with india are statistics that are inherent we do not know the information that is coming to us coming to the limelight the numbers that we're given the numbers that we're being given are right or not that is the first thing and that comes with the kind of scale that india is at and you know various other countries uh, might not be honest might be honest we don't know so the first thing is raising awareness obviously the other thing is as a person uh, the judge told me if you teach a kid not to litter if you teach a child not to litter and if he is going somewhere with his family and his father litters or his his family litters and if that kid picks it up throws it in the bin it was the judges believe that that family would never litter because they recognize the morality of the situation so so inculcating a sense of environment in the generation that is supposed to bear the brunt of our actions to be honest is very important to make them conscious uh there are a couple of other things nanki which i would just came to my mind and i i just very quickly touch upon if you don't mind uh the first thing thing is and this this is going absolutely in the to the other end of the spectrum uh the paris climate agreement so even in my classes i have heard uh the lectures that i take i've heard people asking or public lectures that i conduct or workshops or whatever people have asked me you know if we are doomed anyway if our best case scenario is 3 degrees then why bother right or what has paris climate agreement done if it cannot be enforced right what's the point of having everyone at the same table when they're going to do what they wish to do what if they're not adhering to your ndcs or worse what if their ndcs are not at par of, at what with what it should have been ndcs are nationally determined contributions under paris climate my point is that paris climate agreement somehow brought climate to the forefront and i know that climate change has been in discussion for the past 40 years at least 50 years maybe or maybe 100 years uh, ever since climate science was was being started to be manipulated anyway so climate change has been a part of our discussions but paris climate accord somehow brought it to the mainstream you know you probably and i've no way to verify this but greta thunberg became a phenomena after the paris climate agreement you know you started appreciating everything about climate change conversations got more intense people started talking more about it thinking more about it gen z started to talk about it became environmentally conscious it became cool to know about climate change and that is a soft aspect of paris climate agreement that we do not appreciate very often so the other thing uh, to your point as to the little changes that you can make is that nationally determined contributions under the paris climate agreement cannot be achieved by a single state unless there's consumer behavior supporting that change right so unless you are saying that no fast fashion is wrong and i understand the amount of raw materials that go in and i understand the amount of waste that it generates and i understand that 
you know, waste export is an industry that is harmful for everyone, the importer and the exporter. You cannot achieve any of those goals. So it all comes down to exactly what you're saying, the changes that you undertake. And, and I've, I've, I've shared this a lot of times in my class. Himmat probably remembers this. But one of my professors at Stanford used to say that the cleanest form of energy is the energy that you do, did not use. So cut down on your consumer habits. Cut down on your habits that would just make you a little happier, but would have an enormous cost in the uh, environment. And again, Himmat knows this. I don't want to go into the cost-benefit analysis because that would require another couple of hours of discussion. But so those were the two points I wanted to make. And thirdly, look at circular economy. I, I spoke to... In my last session, I spoke about circular economy and I, I tried to do justice to it. But ultimately, it's a zero-sum game if you're not treating waste as your normal. And maybe, and I know there are too many missing keys in your conversation on climate change policy. I assure you one of the biggest missing keys is what do you do with waste? If you can figure out how to imbibe waste in your already existing economic supply chain, manufacturing, uh, distribution management systems, there is a case to, for raw materials to become waste of yesterday, right? So that is that would mean that you're now extract, extracting in a perfect world, nil, but in an imperfect world, minimal raw materials, because now you're extracting your raw materials from what is already someone else's waste. Now you're re refusing, you're rethinking, re you're reusing, you're recycling, you're upcycling, you're downcycling, you're not adhering or restricting yourself to landfills or, or that Ghazipur uh, Azad Mandi monstrosity that you have. So those are some of the things that need to be done and and again like i have so much to talk about this i, I i'd rather stop here because as i said we, we'd probably go on for another couple of hours if i do um i mean yeah ishan you said uh, uh some time ago but we just wanted to reiterate to our listeners that you know there are no such things as stupid questions only stupid answers and you know the one of the main objectives of this podcast as well is just to spread awareness something that you are doing very well as well um, so yeah, uh, I think we've kind of hit the nail on the head there. So any closing remarks, like what are you up to nowadays? What are you, what are you doing? What's happening in your life? So, uh, quite a few things. I, first of all, pandemic wasn't all that bad for me because I recently got married. So that has added a dimension to my life. Congratulations uh, on that. Thank you. Uh, also, Hima, please do not plagiarize my statements. There are no stupid questions, only stupid answers is what I use. And Himmat, please give me credit for when you quote it again. And uh, uh, life, life, life is throwing more and more challenges every day, uh, especially the vocation that we are all in. Uh, there are environmental issues to think about, write about, agitate about, uh, talk about every day. And, and I, I hope that I'm doing justice to it. And I hope that all of you keep on doing it to all of our listeners. Uh, always look for a mentor it has helped me in my life a lot uh, clarity of thought not just in terms of you know environmental issues but also uh, what do you want to do next how do you do justice to where you want to be nothing is as bad as realizing 
that your life is an amalgamation of your next best options right plan b a bunch of plan b strung together should not be your life your life should always be your best option your plan a and if you haven't achieved your plan a today you'll achieve it two years later but do not settle for less that takes another absolute i don't know how to put it but that's that's very very relevant especially in the field of environment because you cannot settle for the second best option the second best option for humanity today is doomsday you know there are no silver medals in climate change there are only gold medals of extinction so as long as you have you're not settling for plan b you're not settling for something that is lesser than what you deserve i wish you all the best and and i wish all of our listeners the very a very very healthy mind to be able to assimilate all the information that is thrown at you and a curious mind so that you're able to ask the right questions going forward if there's at any point of time uh, the gpods fellowship or the global policy diplomacy sustainability fellowship or envipol or nanki or himmat or i individually could help you please also feel free to reach out to us uh, and i congratulate the climate club for having such a brilliant podcast where you can actually discuss things uh, in a non agendaed way uh, which i really appreciate because you know apart from international relations meetings climate change does not really adhere to an agenda so i'm glad that we're doing this and and thank you for having me himma thank you for having me nanki and i hope the conversation is continue yeah i mean thank you thank you for that ishan thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today and you know educating nanki and myself and all of our listeners you know it's been a very thought provoking discussion and you know to our listeners thank you for tuning in we do hope you know you take something out of this you do do some research for yourselves and find out about you know climate change the environment everything that we've talked about today and so yeah tune in next week for more interesting discussions and thank you for listening to the climate sand with the final sand thank you, thank you.